Love you. Open your Bibles to Matthew 5, chapter 1, and then Matthew 7, 24. And uh, totally normal Sunday morning today. Came in and there was not 200 gallons of water on the floor. Which is always good if you have to choose. Always good. Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Matthew seven twenty four. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against this house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. Into chapter 8, when he came down the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is God's word, and it is a famous word, perhaps um, no other religious discourse in the history of humanity has attracted more attention uh, than the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, No matter what religion, uh, uh, atheist, philosophy, whatever, everybody knows, everybody has talked about, everybody has thought about the Sermon on the Mount. And not only is the sermon famous, it's controversial. Okay, There are over, in, in conservative evangelicalism, if you move into the liberal side, there's even more. But with, among conservatives, there's 36 different views and angles and, and ways to, that people think about the sermon. And so I say that to say, obviously... These chapters are a big deal, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so before we actually get into them and, and go through each section week by week, I want to do an overview today uh, that will hopefully clear away some of the fog, okay? Because I don't think it's helpful to stand here and say there's actually 36 different ways you can look at this, okay? I don't, you might think that's helpful. I do not, okay? And the reason I want to clear the fog is so that we can see what Jesus is saying clearly, and more important than just see it, obey what Jesus is saying sincerely. That's the deal. Blessed is the one who hears these words and does them, okay? And so to do uh, an overview, I think we can think about the sermon under three different headings. First, as revival, or um, renewal, or return. Second, as eschatology, and third, as discipleship, okay? Renewal, eschatology, and discipleship. Eschatology just means the end, okay? Where, where is history going? What is the Lord doing uh, in this whole deal, starting in Genesis and then into endless ages? Where is it all going? So I think if we have those three things, renewal, eschatology, and discipleship, a lot of the confusion around the sermon will go away, and we find that this message is both understandable and it is obeyable, Okay, that, and that's the goal. If we got that, we're good. So before we... Oh no, this is the wrong draft of this. Hello. Because there's extra stuff in here you don't want to hear. Okay. So just for you who are interested, um, when I write a sermon, I've got like 4,000, 5,000 words. And by the time you get it, it's 25 to 3. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> Okay, here's the real one, the shorter one. 
So the first heading that we should understand the sermon as is kindling for a renewal movement, okay? A revival movement, a return um, within the Jewish story. So a popular way that the sermon uh, has been taught, the way that I taught it as a youth pastor, and the Lord is gracious and kind to us when we're 17 say stupid things about the Bible, um, or 29 and say stupid things about the Bible. Um, that It's taught that Jesus is setting up a new spiritual thing. He's doing a new spiritual movement inside of the stale, crusty bread of Judaism with its laws and its um, customs and the dreaded R-word religion. And Jesus is doing away with all that and starting this new spiritual thing. Well, I, I don't believe... That's what's happening. I would contend instead that Jesus is simply functioning like all the prophets before him. Okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Amos, Nahum. All these people who simply are calling to the Jewish people, the people of God, those elect in Abraham, calling for them to return to the Lord. To return to his words and his law. Back to the, the true Torah adherence. Okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Go back to those things. Calling them not simply to follow the law outwardly. Okay? To, to do the stuff but inwardly and to follow the Lord with all their heart, okay? There's not, this, this Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what Jesus is doing, is in no way new to Israel's story, okay? It's not a new thing. It's, it's not a, a new way to, to do the Torah. We do this weird thing, or at least I do, where we assume that the Old Testament, okay, Genesis 2, Malachi, definitely Genesis 2, um, Deuteronomy is cold and it's dry and it's rigid. And that Old Testament God only cares about the external things that you follow the law to the letter. But hippie Jesus, okay, in the New Testament, <laughs> he's more so with flow, man. You know what I mean? Just like love God, man. <laughs> Grace, not law, my broski, you know. You guys have seen the um, Godspell movie that's set in the 70s. <laughs> that's kind of what they did to Jesus. Okay? Like the Old Testament is about the external, but the New Testament is about the heart. And I would just say that is just not true. And I'm, I'm going to show you God has always been about the human heart. From Genesis to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to Revelation 22, God has always been about the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 4, okay? Moses is about to die. He's not going to get to go into the promised land. And he's retelling Israel's story from the Exodus and the wilderness. And he's giving them the law one more time. So that's what Deuteronomy, you read it and you're like, I think I read this before because you did, okay? But he's giving it to them one more time. He says, verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going to go over the Jordan to possess. You guys are going to go in and then you're going to screw it up and die. Okay, that's what he's saying. You will not live long in it, but it will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you from among the peoples and you will be left with few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. So the Lord is driving them out of the land because they're dumb. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you get this story. But from there, from your scattering, from being driven out of the land, there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all of your heart and all of your soul. And we're in Deuteronomy 4. 
God's always been about the heart. And, and, and when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, he's going to list out those things in Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. When all of these things come on you in the last days, you will return to the Lord your God and you will obey his voice. For the Lord your God's a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The Lord wants obedience to the law, okay? Jesus is not saying, no, he was just kidding about that stuff. I'm here to be cool. You know, I'm the hip God. He's the mean one. Like, we're going to do, no, always, 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 the Lord wants obedience to the law, but from the heart, from the guts, from, from your bones. So he gives the commandments, Deuteronomy 6, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay? We're in Deuteronomy still. Then we move into the Psalms, still Old Testament, Psalm 15, Stony read this morning. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless. How do we gauge what's blameless? According to the law, right? Okay. And who does what is righteous? How do we gauge what is righteous? The law. Who speaks the truth from his heart. Psalm 51. David again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Surely, God, you desire truth. Where? In the inner parts, I want the heart. You teach me wisdom where? In the inmost place. Create in me, God, pure heart. Oh, God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings, okay? Meaning, not that God doesn't take pleasure in burnt offerings. You just read, he doesn't take pleasure. I know. (laughs) Okay? The burnt offerings, the sacrificial system, the Levitical system. Whose idea was that? God's okay, so what, what he's saying is you don't delight in the outward practice for the outward practice sake, okay? Unless they're done from a right heart. Don't bring the goat, don't bring the pigeon, don't bring the ram if you're not coming in sincerity, is what he's saying. The sacrifices of God, the ones you, you want, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, which is what the sacrifices express, right? Like, you bring the goat because you are brokenhearted over your sin. You bring the pigeons because you're brokenhearted that you have hurt your neighbor or offended God. Oh, God, you will not despise. So we move at, we got we got the law. We got David. We move into the prophets, Isaiah 66. This is the one who I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. Meaning, whoever does the right thing outwardly, right? You bring the bull, you do it all right, you got your stuff working out with the priest, but inwardly you're full of anger and you're full of hate. You're not actually coming with a contrite heart and a contrite spirit. God has, God, that, you, that bull is a stinking smell to God. He doesn't want it. He just keeps going. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. Whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They've chosen their own ways and their souls delight in abomination. So Isaiah is saying to the people, don't bring your offering. Don't bring your sacrifice. Don't bring this and don't bring that. If it's not happening here, I don't want it. It stinks. Mark 7, now we move into Jesus, and Jesus is telling the same story that Moses told, that David told, that the prophets tell. He's telling it. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips. Okay, the Pharisees, not the Sadducees so much, but the Pharisees, they got perfect theology. 
They say all the right things. They stand at the court and pray, and it's perfect, and it sounds good. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts, what's he say? They're far from me. I don't care if you have all the right words, and you have all the right songs, and we stand up, and we can say the Nicene Creed, and the Apostles' Creed, and the Chalcedonian Creed, and your orthodoxy is perfect, but your heart's not after the Lord. The Lord doesn't want it. Okay, It's gross to him. Matthew 25, 23, woe to you. Teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, that's good, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. You see, that's how it's supposed to work. I'm brokenhearted. Okay, I've sinned against the Lord. I've hurt my neighbor, so I'm bringing the sacrifice from the heart. 27, woe to you. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside. You got the words. You got the dress. You got the, you know, just a good-looking goat. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So, what I mean by the Sermon on the Mount is to be understood as renewal. He's not calling them to a new thing, okay? Jesus is Jewish. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> he's Jewish. He's talking to Jews. He's calling them back to the law. He's not calling them to a new thing. He's calling them back to an old thing from the heart, not calling them away from the Torah, but back to it. So the primary purpose and the fullest meaning of the Sermon on the Mount is to call Israel into an authentic relationship with God and to be the nation that he chose uh, through which all the nations would be blessed, right? We're going to get later in the sermon, verse 15, Israel, a city on a hill, a, a, a light. Don't hide that thing. Put it out there. Do what you were called to do back in Genesis 12. And so the way they would do that, according to Jesus, would be to bear fruits of repentance from the heart, not merely external, okay? And we you know, make lots of applications to us right here. We can do all the right things and show up on Sunday and sing the right words and, and our preaching be true and right. And the Lord says it stinks if it's not done from the heart. Okay? We'll stop here because like for the next three months, we're just going to hit this heart, 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 heart thing. Okay? So the sermon's not a new thing. Jesus is not a new Moses setting up a new kingdom thing. This is the old thing calling him back to it from the heart. Okay? God wants the hearts of his people in sincerity, and God wants your heart in sincerity as well. Okay. Second, to clear the fog surrounding the sermon, we need to know that the context for all of these teachings is wholly eschatological. Okay? It is pointed to uh, your last day or the last day, whichever one um, comes first. Everything Jesus teaches here is framed towards the end, towards the day of the Lord and the kingdom of God. Okay, So let's just read through some of it and... We'll see. 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a future eschatological reality. How, how do we know that that's future? Well, we have an Old Testament that makes that pretty clear. But later in chapter 7, Jesus equates the kingdom of heaven that he just read there with the day. Okay? The day of judgment. So read Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in the heavens. So what's the kingdom equated with? Not everyone's going to enter, verse 22, on that day. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven on that day, because many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these awesome things? And I will declare to you, depart from me. When do you depart from him? Okay, At the judgment, you workers of lawlessness. So it's aimed 
at the eschaton. Jesus really sincerely cares about your eternal life. Whether that's eternal life in the kingdom of God or that's eternal life in a lake of fire. Jesus cares. That's why he's preaching to us. So you can say, Lord, Lord, in this day, we did this thing. We gave this money. We served at this thing. We preached here. We taught here. We sang here. You can say all of that, all those things. But if it's done in pretense now, and if it's done for the reward of man now and not in wholeheartedness, you're thrown into a lake of fire on that day. You don't inherit eternal life. Lord, Lord, like we did all the things. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. What about 5-4? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, again, this harkens us back to the Old Testament. What do we find? We find that the Lord has promised comfort to his people at the final restoration of Israel. Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her, her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. Isaiah 49, 12, behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the east and the west and these from the land of Serene. You remember Deuteronomy? They were all scattered. They were all driven out. Now Isaiah's prophesying of the day they come back in. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> Later in Isaiah, the trees are clapping their hands. The Lord comes. Now mountains are singing for the Lord has comforted his people. He will have compassion on the afflicted when they come in from the north and the south and the east and the west. Isaiah 52, break forth together in singing. You waste places of Jerusalem. Which is a place you can go and visit. <laughs> That's cool. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. We won't do the holy arm thing today. Before the eyes of all the nations and before all the ends of the earth, they shall see the salvation of our God. When is the salvation of our God? When he comes on his day of wrath and crushes all of his enemies and brings in everlasting righteousness. Like, this is the deal. And when is it? You know what I'm saying? Or Isaiah 61. You guys know Isaiah 61. We, we say it and read it all the time. Jesus quotes it when he... Gets into um, his teaching. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To what? To comfort all who mourn. Right? Associated with the day. To grant those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of after the oil of gladness instead of mourning. So that's a positive eschatological vision and it pervades the whole sermon. Blessed are kingdom of heaven. Blessed are kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, okay? So, but in Jewish eschatology and in most Gentile eschatology, the day of the Lord is good news for those who are repentant. But if you're not, it's what? Bad news. Okay, so, so we have this positive vision of the day of the Lord and the kingdom of God and the restoration of all things and the resurrection of the dead. All those wonderful things we talked about last week. We've got a real positive vision for that, but Jewish eschatology brings with it a negative connotation as well. So remember the context of Jesus preaching. John shows up and preaches, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus steals his sermon, preaches, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But before that, John says, you brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee what? Coming wrath. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear uh, good fruit will be cast into the fire and burned up. But all the wheat will be taken into the barn. You remember that? Okay, so that's going on here too. 
wrath is coming for sin. God is good. God loves the world. So God is going to remove sin from the world. You love your house that you made. You're going to get the mold out. You're going to clean it out and you're not going to let people in who are going to bring in whatever, Cheetos and crunch them into your carpet. Okay? So wrath is coming for sin. Right? We read that in, in chapter 7. Rains fell, wind came, beat and blew on the house. One house stood. It stood. In the day of wrath, in the day of judgment, it stood and the other didn't. And it says, great was the fall of it. So the stakes of the Sermon on the Mount are up here. Like they can't be any higher. You just can't get any higher than the day of the Lord, kingdom of heaven, like a fire. The, the other didn't stand. Every exhortation in the sermon is day of the Lord centric. Every, every exhortation in the sermon is aimed at entering the kingdom of heaven, 5, 3, and 20, inheriting the earth, having mercy shown on the day of recompense, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy when? You don't always get mercy in this age if you're merciful. Where, where are you banking on mercy being shown to you? That day when you stand before God, you're going to stand there and say, well, I did pretty good, didn't I? No, you're going to stand before God and you're going to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus will teach later, that guy goes home justified. It's a big deal. Hell, chapter 523, eternal reward, 548, 64, and 6, forgiveness of sins, judgment, and the day of the Lord that we just read with the two houses. When the wind comes and the, the rain falls and the wind blows and it beats on the house, based on how you love Jesus, obey Jesus, throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus and the cross, your house is going to stand or it's going to fall. So this is real intense stuff. Like, I am so not looking forward to the next couple months of going through this. Because it just beats on you. Just grinds on you. And it's, I mean, it's good, right? You'd rather know <laughs> than find out on the day, like, oh, I didn't know. No, you know. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God here. So we don't want to complicate the message. There's two paths in this age, okay? There, there's not a middle fence thing with the Lord. There's two paths in this age, and how we walk them out determines what the age to come is like for us, what the day of the Lord is like for us. The poor and the hungry and those who weep and the ones who are hated and reviled for the sake of Jesus, they are the ones who are blessed. That's what those Beatitudes are saying. They receive a place in the coming kingdom where they will be filled with joy and great reward on that day. Okay? So if you're walking your days out in repentance, not in perfection, but in repentance... Walking that out, you have great reward on the day. But in those same Beatitudes, it says the ones who are rich and satisfied and laughing and spoken well of, and we'll go through that, what that means, because a lot of you are rich and a lot of you are satisfied in other things, and a lot of you laugh, praise God, and I speak well of most of you, okay? Just kidding. They all receive woe on the day. Blessed are these, and the, when Luke teaches the Sermon on the Mount, he says, woe to those. Okay? It's not going to go well for them on the day. So over and over and over and over in the sermon, we'll see this theme. Jesus is pointing to the end. And again, whether that's you know, tomorrow for you or at the day of the Lord, when he comes, we know how to be blessed. And we know how to be, you know, be woed. Get the woe instead of blessing. Which brings us to the third heading of the sermon of discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's mechanism for discipleship in this age, or as one of my favorite um, Bible teachers says, eschatology drives discipleship. Okay, Meaning this, the reality of what's future determines how you live now. 
Okay? And that's basic in kindergarten. That's basic in a job. That's basic. I mean, that's just how things work. You can't have the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. Live this way. Don't live this way. You can't have those ethics without the eschatology of the Sermon on the Mount. It won't work. Okay? Ethics without eschatology doesn't work. Ethics without punishment, ethics without reward, just doesn't work. Okay? Your home doesn't work without punishment and reward. Children are taught to behave based on punishment and reward. Or they should be. Okay? I don't have children yet, so I'll use some that I do know. <laughs> Ray. Ray was up here playing with this. Okay? Ray knows if I'm nice to baby Charlie, the home is pleasant. Mom and dad smile, and maybe Ray gets an ice cream sandwich after dinner. Mom, maybe we can have an ice cream sandwich? <laughs> okay, reward. I behave in this way, reward, in that day, in the evening. But Ray also knows if I'm rough with baby Charlie, if I keep running around the house with a tractor in one hand and a dinosaur in the other, and I lose my grip, as children do, and I hit Charlie, the home is not pleasant, mom and dad punish me, and I get no ice cream. Simple enough? This is what the sermon's doing. This is how the home works. It's how discipleship works, and it's how Jesus frames it. Walk this way in this age, and there's reward when at the day of the Lord. It's just basic discipleship. We read this in, in Larry's Sunday School this morning, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. It's like not complicated. You know, and I, I, just, like, read, I didn't read all 36 things. I got to like 18. I was like, oh my gosh, Gentiles are silly. Just read it. <laughs> okay? It's not hard. And listen to how Paul deals with these concepts of, of eschatology. Like where is the future going and how that changes how we live and how we walk. Romans 13. Got these Jews and, and Gentile churches at each other's necks here. And Paul's saying, get along. He's coming. Okay. He says, for the commandments, verse 9. So he's giving them the law. We're in the New Testament now. Back to the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, which just gives you them all there, are summed up in this word. So all the law and the prophets will find out. Jesus said, guys, just love your neighbor and yourself. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul is teaching these people. He's giving them the law. He's giving them the behavior. Act this way. But then, to energize their obedience, okay, to encourage them to walk humbly before God, then he gives them eschatology. Then he points them to the end. Besides this, guys, here's the law. You know the time. You know that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And I'll say the same thing to you guys. Salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. There it is. Okay? Instruction is based on salvation that's near. Walk this way now because this day is coming. Real easy. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness. Behave this way. Okay? Don't run around Charlie with the dinosaur and, and the tractor. Cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Okay? They're not in the daytime yet. He's saying, live now. Live in this age. How are you going to live then? Does that make sense? 
And all the, I used to know you today, like, we're going to get through this every, he's like, walk in the daytime. Live now as if, as how you live then. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Why? Because salvation is nearer today than when you first believed. Why? Because the day of the Lord is at hand. Why? Because on that day, the merciful in this age are going to be shown mercy. The poor in this age are going to be made rich. Okay, Those who mourn in this age are going to be comforted on that day. So walk in this age like you will on that day. Eschatology, the end, drives discipleship. Okay? Very real. Very real. Uh, uh, Do your work well now in this age. Be honest in your dealings in this age because in the age to come, you're faithful in those things. The Lord's going to put you over ten cities. You know what I mean? Like, you know, this is always my example is uh, Brian and Reese both work in construction. It's like the Lord Jesus. Reese, you got 10th Street, man. Get it. (laughs) Fix it. Brian, you you know what I mean? Because you were faithful in this age over little. Eschatology drives discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount drives discipleship. And just as a, a quick thing, you got a new person who's following um, Jesus. Leslie baptized last week. You want know to follow Jesus? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and do it. Okay? We'll close with this. Um, I hope as, um, as we've read through just a portion of the sermon that, that you're provoked by the words of Jesus. Okay? And he says, love, love, love my enemies? <laughs> Have you met my enemies, Jesus? <laughs> do good to the one who hurts me? Yeah, what about my rights? Well, do good to the one who hurts you. That's provoking, right? You read, that, you read those things, and imagine if you're sitting there, and, and Jesus is on the mountain teaching these things. You're provoked. Like, Man, that's, that's something, okay? But what I want to close with is, is to say this. Being provoked by Jesus' words, okay, having pot, reading them and going, being provoked by Jesus' words is not the same thing as obeying Jesus' words, okay? And, and that's the weight that, that, not just the sermon, I mean, that all of Scripture lays on us. We can read it and say, oh, I love, love the Bible, love the story it's telling, love all this stuff, it's really provoking, I like to think about it. On the day of the Lord, it's not going to be that you thought about it. It's going to be that you did it, okay? And one of the do things is repentance, okay? I'm, I'm under no impression that we walk this thing out perfectly, so I do have to figure out what Jesus means when he says, therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Pray for me as we get closer to that passage, okay? The challenge is to walk it out. The rabbi said this, the history of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that's shocking and demanding and uncompromising and render it harmless. The challenge of the Sermon on the Mount is not to explain it away, but to obey it. And to do that, we need the grace of God. We need the Spirit of God inside of us. We need to be led by the Spirit in these things. We need to constantly throw ourselves back on the cross because we're going to screw this up and we're going to sin and we're going to say, Lord, thank you that at the right time you died for the ungodly. You gave your your life and your blood uh, when I am not merciful. For, for the times when I'm not poor in spirit, for, for the times uh, when I'm pompous and boasting and not mourning over the state of the world. So that's what should happen over the next several months. 
is we throw ourselves onto the mercy of God, that the Sermon on the Mount drives us to our knees to cry out to the Lord for grace to obey. Okay? So I'm, you know, just, I am honestly scared to go through this. It's demanding of us. It's not, a, it's not a little whatever. You read this and we just go about our whatever lives. Like Jesus demands everything in here, but he also promises to give us the spirit to obey it. Okay? Okay. So this thing is a renewal, calling Israel back. Okay? Love the Lord as you did. Okay? He, he brought you out of the wilderness. He brought you out of Egypt. He gave you the law so that you would love him and obey him. Rightly, it is pointed to the day, and it is for our discipleship. Let's pray.